You're listening to the Beauty Plus Justice podcast, where we talk with folks from a variety of fields about what it will take to create a more clean and equitable future of beauty for everyone. These conversations are led by Dr. Tamara James Todd, a trailblazer at Harvard Teach Chan School of Public Health and head of the Environmental Reproductive Justice Lab. And I'm your host, Lisa Johnson, a PhD candidate at Harvard Chan. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into our seventh episode. I'm glad you're here. For the past few episodes, we've really been focusing in on the role of clinicians and the healthcare system in reaching beauty justice. But now let's talk business, specifically the beauty business. The important players within the beauty industry supply chain include the manufacturers that are making the beauty products and the distributors and retailers that get the products directly to customers. As we've talked about in previous episodes, the market is flooded with products that contain chemicals of concern. So what would it look like to get the beauty industry itself on board with the beauty justice movement? A critical thing that they can do is setting up um, strong chemicals policy or commitment to, um, to sell safer products. That was Boma Brown-West, currently the Chief Growth Officer at Healthy Building Network and formerly the Director of Consumer Health at EDF Plus Business, which is the arm of the Environmental Defense Fund that partners with businesses to bring more sustainable, environmental-focused leadership and operations to corporations and supply chains. In this episode, she and Dr. Tamir James Todd will talk about how EDF is helping businesses commit to making smarter, safer choices when it comes to the chemical formulations of the personal care products that they manufacture, distribute, and sell to customers. They also talk about the growth of online retailers or e-commerce and the opportunities that this provides for more equitable access to safer products. This is a fascinating conversation that begins our two-episode dive into the role of business and beauty justice. Now I'll pass it off to Dr. Tamir James Todd. I am delighted today to have a friend and colleague, um, um, Boma Brown-West, join us today from the Environmental Defense Fund. I'm excited about today's talk because we are going to get a chance to talk about a topic that doesn't so much come up in the the idea or the space of thinking about beauty justice. And so, um, Boma, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Yes. Um, I'm Boma Brown-West. I am Director of Consumer Health at Environmental Defense Fund, or EDF. And um, I work on uh, the EDF Plus Business Team, which is the corporate engagement arm of EDF. Um, And we're all about leveraging the power of the marketplace to drive environmental results and by partnering with high impact companies to transform them. That is awesome. That is awesome. And so you already hinted at um, kind of what the topic of today's Um, podcast is going to be about, which is really thinking about the role of the marketplace in um, beauty justice, environmental exposures, and health. And I'm wondering then how exactly did you get into this work? How did you, can you tell us a bit about your story? How did you come to doing work in the marketplace of beauty justice? Sure. Yes. Um, It is, it wasn't a direct um, straight line. That's, that's for sure. Um, so uh, first and foremost, I always like to do this uh, for my mom, just uh, mention that I'm a proud daughter of um, two uh, strong and persevering Nigerian immigrants. Um, one, was in, one was an engineer. Um, my mom is a health scientist. And so 
you know, now I look at my career and I see that it is kind of a, um, a meeting of those two things. Um, because professionally, I started out as an engineer. So over time, I started steering my career towards um, sustainable products and systems and environmental policy. And so, uh, and as I was doing that um, over the years, I realized that not a lot of people were really talking about something that is so, that's such a big part of sustainability. And it's also very personal to everyone. And that's our exposure to toxic chemical pollution and its negative impacts on our health. And that's really what brought me to EDF so that I could um, focus on that more. I'm, I'm curious, you know, a lot of time we, um, we hear about exposures, particularly in the beauty space of like, well, it's the individual level. It's all about the individual. And we don't hear a whole lot about you know, those upstream factors. And it seems to me that you're, you, you, you know, you're in the, the, the business of really thinking about what are the policies, what are the other systems that are at play? So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how, um, you know, what are some of those upstream factors that have, that you think may influence sustainability? We've mentioned upstream factors in previous episodes, and I just wanted to give a bit more context on this common public health and health disparities lingo. If we think of health like a stream, at the farthest downstream end, we have health outcomes, which can be positive or negative, like good health and longevity or mortality and disease. And as you move upstream, there are different elements that impact these health outcomes from individual risk factors and behaviors And then moving more upstream, there are different environmental conditions, including the social and built environment. And finally, institutional and societal factors. The more upstream you go, the further away you get from individual interventions, and there are more opportunities for macro level systemic solutions. Sure, you know, if we think about the products um, that we use every day, you know, makeup products, um, cleaning products, clothing that we wear, all of those things, you know, before they actually, before we purchase them, before we bring them into our home, there are so many decisions that have been made um, before us, have been made for us by companies as to what these products are going to contain and how they're going to work. Um, And, you know, so first and foremost, the ingredients that go into those products the primary, the, the thing that's top of mind for companies is I want my product to function in this way. So for example, I want this to be long lasting um, or I want this lotion to really be able to, um, to get into the skin and make it feel soft and everything. So they're primarily thinking about function. And um, what comes along with that is sometimes, oftentimes, um, not a consideration for, okay, but these, um, the ingredients that make up this product, what could be, what are some of those impacts to human health? Some of those long-term impacts that can exist. Um, and so that's really what we're trying to, uh, get people to think about more is, um, really evaluating, not just how does this, how does, um, this ingredient, um, work on a functional scale and what might it cost because you know they have to they're thinking about the cost of their products and how that translates into the sales price 
but also what are those underlying hazards of those ingredients and um, how are they going to be exposed to the product ingredients um, uh, on, on, you know, over time through the use of the, of the product. And so that's really where we try to point people um, towards thinking and embedding into their product development, product design process. That's, I, I think that that's um, such an important point, um, being able to start helping companies to refocus and reframe um, kind of what, you know, so now you know what the function is, but really being able to consider what are you putting into your products and how might that impact health? You know, so a furniture company may not be necessarily be thinking about, you know, the chemicals they're putting in impacting someone's health, but you know, creating a, a pathway in which they can actually take those factors. Exactly. That, that's really, um, I, I think that's such a unique perspective and, and yet so important. And so um, would you say that this five pillars for safer chemical leadership is one of the strategies or tools that um, EDF is using to really help companies refocus um, or have a new lens towards thinking about the impact of what they do? Um, and how it impacts health? Yeah, that was exactly where I was going to head next. Um, yeah, we created the five pillars of safer chemical leadership as a framework to, to guide companies on their journey towards safer products. And um, its main focus is to really look at what, what does it mean to do this on the ground? How can companies really execute this safer chemical, safer um, product philosophy? Uh, and, and the reason that we created the pillars is that early on, we noticed that, um, you know, companies were stuck. They wanted to, they wanted to meet this, uh, this desire that, you know, consumers have, right? Consumers want safe products in their homes. And they didn't, and they didn't know what do we do with our current business practices to make this happen? Uh, what ingredients do, should we be removing? What alternatives should we go into? So um, the pillars are those um, essential areas for companies to focus on. Um, and just real quickly, you know, their institutional commitment um, is the first one. Um, supply chain transparency is our pillar about the visibility that companies need into what's being used by their suppliers. Uh, with safer product design, um, this is about adopting the right business processes to ensure that you're actually eliminating toxic chemicals and vetting the safety of new ones as you're, as you're bringing them in and that you're actually measuring your progress along the way. Um, and then the last two are informing consumers and public commitment. And those two pillars, they really speak to how honest a company is being about their products, about their methods, um, and about their progress. So what I'm really hearing, and I think that you hit the nail on the head with the, the point um, that I kind of hear throughout is the idea or concepts of effective communication and transparency. Um, yes, and absolutely. so how do you go about making sure that it's not just companies, but also retailers themselves, um, what is their role? in all of this? Yeah, you know, um, that's retailers is uh, the retail space specifically is where I've spent most of my um, work because retailers, um, by being that bridge between the consumer and um, uh, brand manufacturers, 
they have an important role to play in really setting that demand and setting it for the business, setting it for um, brand manufacturers and for suppliers, um, upstream suppliers. Uh, and so one a critical thing that they can do is um, setting up um, strong chemicals policy or commitment to um, to sell safer products and to really um, live those the five pillars I mentioned really kind of set that as a goal for themselves, but then for their upstream suppliers. Um, another key thing that retailers can do is to identify the chemicals um, that they want removed from removed from products. Um, and that's a way that also helps show that they recognize um, that there's, you know, there are these toxic chemicals out there um, that are known to be toxic for these reasons. Um, and we no longer want these in, in products. And you're seeing that now in the clean, the emergence of like the clean beauty space, right? There's a key role that retailers can play um, so that you're not just, um, seeing one brand changing or one brand transforming, but you can see the entire um, beauty portfolio transform. And so I guess that that really brings up um, another point. You know, we're talking about beauty justice. And so we kind of laid the groundwork of like, you know, we're talking about this in the concept of a marketplace. And so these upstream factors that, you know, can sometimes get lost in translation when thinking about you know, beauty, people often go right to the individual level and individual behaviors, but there's so much that feeds into that, what's available or accessible to people, what's, um, you know, what what they may actually be, be using because what, what's being marketed to them. Um, and so what I'd like to kind of spend a little bit of time talking about is the justice piece of this. Um, you know, in, in the marketplace um, space of thinking about beauty, would you say the clean beauty experience is being equitably um, experienced across the board? And if not, what are some of kind of the marketplace or systems that are in place that make it inequitable for, for some? Yeah, no, that's, an, that's a great question. And it's certainly where um, um, I've been prioritizing a lot of my work now um, uh, because, you know, first there's their overall safer beauty uh, um, quest, right? That we're trying to change the, um, the entire sector. Um, and um, I, I've achieved a lot of um, uh, success there in terms of getting retailers and some brands to set public commitments on this. And we've, we've also seen um, this growth of clean beauty, but when it comes to beauty justice, there is a huge gap because today um, the beauty sector has not prioritized making um, making products for um, people of color safer. Even though, even though those products, those products that are marketed to people of color and primarily women of color, contain more toxic ingredients, and um, the data bear the data also bears out that um, there's a noticeable um, uh, difference in terms of the levels of these toxic substances in the bodies of um, women of color, um, like you and me, right? And so, even though clean the clean beauty revolution is taking over the marketplace, 
um, clean beauty products are still predominantly being geared towards white women. And so there is, um, there's a big gap here um, that needs to be addressed. And um, what I'm trying to do uh, uh, through my work at EDF is make sure that as we're getting, you know, safer products to market, that racial equity is being put front and center in this, and that um, where the need is greatest in products um, created for and marketed to women of color, we are we're seeing faster improvement. You know, that's terrific to hear. I know that about you know roughly eight to ten years ago, a colleague and I. Um, um, really sat down to try to grapple with this issue of, we were interested in doing an intervention and we wanted to uh, reduce um, exposure to um, um, personal care product chemical known as phthalates. And so I know Roman, you and I both know about phthalates, but these are, for those of you all who may not know, these are endocrine disrupting chemicals that are known to affect, you know, the reproductive system, um, the, the cardiovascular system, and so on. And um, we wanted to, to do this work where we would do develop an intervention around personal care products. And it was specifically um, looking at women of color because we knew that they had much higher concentrations from our national data set. And Boma, what I was really disheartened by was when we uh, worked with our business strategy uh, department, um, to identify business partners that would be willing to develop, uh, um, you know, basically the intervention uh, product, they all said, well, this isn't sustainable because women of color will not purchase um, safer or green products. And I, you know, th th these were major manufacturers uh, that I won't name, but I, you know, this idea or concept that uh, women of color um, are un, you know are not interested or cannot afford um, or whatever misconceptions are out there around uh, the ability to purchase or be interested in purchasing um, safer products. Um, have you run across this? Yeah, um, yeah, I am also disheartened by that myth because I think uh, you know everyone, everyone wants to have, safe products. Everyone does, right? Um, and especially today, um, as we see um, more, um, you know, more companies trying to chase the millennial consumer, the Gen Z consumer, guess who cares about chemical safety more? Guess who cares about um, sustainable companies and products more? It's those same consumers. And it is it is um, uh, 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 women of color who care about these issues and who want to bring safer products into their homes. Um, there is that market base there. Um, I, you know, I think the the myth that you bring up is is very similar to that. Oh, it's very similar to that overall thought of oh, if I try and create um, that product that uses safer ingredients. No one's going to buy it. No one's going to buy green products. It's something that, you know, it's been it's been shown to be proven wrong because guess what? Even when we were having our um, uh, economic slowdown a few years ago, 
Um, and, you know, same, you know, also over the last two years when we've had the pandemic and everything, the, the marketplace for, and you can call them green products, um, sustainable products, clean products, it has steadily been growing. Um, that consumer demand is there and it's borne out in, um, in people's purchase habits. Um, yeah. And so <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it there, but it, there, that de the demand, the demand is absolutely there. The desire is, is there. I think that, um, this raises an, an important point about, um, accessibility and availability, because if you can do what you're, you know, recommending across the board, it doesn't matter then, you know, where you're shopping, what store happens to be closest to you, or if you shop online, the the actual products are safer. And so across across the board. So right. I really appreciate that because I often, I, I'm sure you do too, get this question about, well, you know, people, particularly like, you know, the millennials and and, and younger generations are, are starting to buy everything online. So is it, 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 things are more accessible, safer products are more accessible. Um, but I think brand and brand awareness and knowledge um, of what is safer is also that becomes maybe even a, a greater issue because it's hard to know, you know, the go-to product if you haven't kind of changed the, what you're making available and how you get that information to people going back to kind of transparency yeah. and communication. Right? Exactly. Transparency. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up e-commerce because yes, e-commerce, particularly in the last few years has really started to um, um, dominate in terms of where people are buying their products. And on one hand, it does offer the opportunity to be more transparent, to share more information about the safety of um, your product, about the methods you use to, um, to make sure that your products contain safer ingredients. Um, and that is certainly something that um, we've been pushing, um, you know, released a, um, an e-commerce playbook last year for, for retailers on that very end, um, pushing that, um, and our um, Clean Beauty Roadmap this year really pushes um, companies uh, on um, what are the key elements to to, de to demonstrating to demonstrating to consumers um, information that helps them be more informed as they're making purchases. To be honest, I hadn't thought about the point of you know, just the additional information that you can can gather from kind of the e-commerce space compared to when you just kind of walk into a store and, you know, you're just looking at a label, uh, right. for example, that's that I had, you know, that is a really um, critically important point and the, and the importance of that in the, the clean beauty space. So I'm going to pivot us a little bit mm -hmm. um, because I'm, I'm wondering, you know, can you tell us a bit more about Environmental Defense Fund and kind of the current priorities around beauty justice? Sure, yes. Um, and so just kind of going um, back, um, the main goal um, for us is to transform companies, their operations and their supply chain. So we're getting that whole, um, that whole kind of market transformation. Um, and so 
when it comes to beauty justice, there are um, three main things that we are um, encouraging or influencing companies um, to do. And the first one is um, committing to removing toxic ingredients from personal care products marketed to women of color, because that's the very first step, right? Um, making sure that they're, uh, that reformulated products or new products are using only verified safer ingredients. And, and honestly, and you know, just what that means in essence is we don't want new products to be introducing ingredients that have the same or worse hazards, right? Because then we're back to where we started. And then finally, what you and I were talking about a little while ago is making it easier for shoppers to be able to find safer um, products um, by using trusted labels, um, certifications, um, or providing um, more information um, on the product packaging or online about the ingredients. Um, so those are our three, the three main things that um, we are um, trying to push companies um, to focus their attention on to make to make um, great strides on. Well, that's, um, I think that that's such a critical point. And I, I'm curious, just for like the, the entrepreneur that's listening um, to this today, who's really interested in transforming their, their product. There's so many people these days entering into this, you know, um, cleaner beauty space and, um, and thinking about these issues, but really not knowing how to get started. Like, where do they go from, from, you know, from here, basically, how do they, how do they start really thinking about this? What's step one for them? Ooh, yeah. Good question. I think, um, step one is to, I would say it's to understand where they are today when it comes to, um, when it comes to, um, to chemicals, to their ingredients, um, and being able to discern like what are toxic chemicals? What is that toxic chemical universe, right? Because we're not saying that all chemicals are, um, are um, bad, would never say that because the whole world, I mean, the whole world is made of um, chemicals, right? But there's, uh, there's a, um, a, a need as an entrepreneur really starting out to get a sense of um, when you're choosing ingredients, it's not just about their function. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just about what can this ingredient do in my product. We have to think about the um, larger context. Yeah, I know that I think you're, you're spot on. And I think that those are really helpful, I think, uh, uh, steps to, for someone to take if they're interested in kind of the way forward, how to navigate this space. And so I'm just going to end with this final question, because we talked a lot about systems, we talked about, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, businesses that are producing these products and retailers who are selling these products and, um, you know, people who are trying to just start out. And, and so in the context of systems and thinking about all of the different components that make up this complex issue. You know, what do you see is um, kind of the way forward for working together, whether that's uh, researchers, policymakers, companies, um, you know, being able to work together to develop uh, sustainable uh, solutions um, around beauty justice? It's key for um, companies 
to um, really look in, inside and see um, what are, if we're trying to get to the future, what are those changes to our business model, to our way of thinking when it comes to product development that we have to change? And that can't be done alone. You know, there are key things that businesses within themselves um, have to do, um, but that also requires partnership and collaboration with their suppliers, um, with researchers who are looking at the um, newer chemistries or who are better defining what some of the current problems are. Um, and sometimes it also means the industry coming together, working in a pre-competitive space to, um, to try and grapple with issues. Um, you know, for example, one thing um, we uh, really tried to help catalyze a few years ago was um, pre-competitive work on um, surfacing safer preservatives because that is an issue across the industry, right? No, and I and I do think um, you know you raise the important point of partnership and collaboration um, is essential. So I, you know I have really enjoyed um, this discussion. It's been terrific. Um, is there anything else you wanted to share? Um, um, I just wanted to say that um, you know I'm glad that um, you're helping to um, build awareness and raise awareness around um, beauty justice and the. Uh, the need for beauty justice, um, because as much as we see this inequity that exists, um, we also uh, want to help other um, uh, other shoppers like ourselves, right? Be able to recognize this and um, and um, uh, really harness their voice to continue to push companies um, to provide safer safer um, solutions for everyone. Um, uh, and in particular for, uh, for people of color. So, um, yeah, thank you. I had a really great time today too. Great. Okay. Thank you again. It was wonderful to speak with you today. Beauty is an environmental justice issue, but we as a community do have power and agency to push for more just chemical standards from beauty product manufacturers and retailers. Black consumers alone spend on average six to seven billion dollars on beauty care products annually and buy nine times as many products compared to white consumers. However, communities of color are not yet the focus of the clean beauty movement. Manufacturers and retailers have a key role to play in the beauty justice movement and ensuring equitable access to safe products. Strategic partnerships like the ones that EDF are initiating are key to ensuring that beauty brands and retailers understand their role in transforming the beauty industry. In the next episode, we'll continue this conversation when we talk with Heather McKinney from The Honest Company, a clean personal care and beauty product brand. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Beauty Plus Justice. Help us get more folks listening to the podcast. Tell a friend and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Be well, listeners. This episode was produced and edited by Marissa Chan, Lisa Johnson, and Felicia Haykoop, with assistance from Elkania Chaudhry-Polino. We receive funding from the Environmental Defense Fund.